Now, when Emil and Dan and myself talked about this series last year and doing this this year and this theme, it was exciting to talk about the idea and the relevance and the importance of the cross. Uh, so often we have the tendency to lose sight of the importance not only of the death of Jesus, but how the New Testament highlights the cross, that it wasn't just simply he died. And we ought to think about that, that Jesus didn't come to this earth, live a long life of 85 years old and then died. There, there's importance to the means of his death. Throughout the year, we're going to talk about that and talk about some of the places where the scriptures really highlight and emphasize the nature of the cross and why that is so important to our faith. In talking about that as well, it's going to be, I think, a little bit different than our prior themes in that uh, the series, the two series that we've been doing on Sunday morning really zero in on that. We're now uh, in the section in Mark's Gospel where we're coming to the death of Jesus. We're going to get to spend many, many weeks uh, over the next couple of months really looking at uh, the final days of Jesus' life and the implications of the cross and what Mark is teaching in regards to that. The book of Hebrews also spends an awful lot of time talking about Jesus and his uh, greatness and his superiority and also refers to his death and why that is so great. So it's not going to be just merely once a month like in prior years where we're going to have this standalone lesson. We're going to have this theme uh, practically weekly through most of the year and talking about uh, this importance of, of Jesus and his death and the cross as the means by which of his death. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to be in Hebrews chapter 2, as was just read for us. If you remember that when talking about the book of Hebrews, this is a sermon that is given to Christians to encourage their faith. Uh, sometimes this book is portrayed uh, in, a, in a false way of, well, it's just trying to keep people from going back to Judaism, which is not ever particularly stated in, in the book of Hebrews. But what is stated over and over again is this warning to not lose heart, to not give up their original confidence, to not fall back over and over again, these, these critical admonitions that they would not lose heart and maintain their faith. And so as we continue our study in, in Hebrews from time to time this year, we're going to continue to ask that question of now what does this text do to encourage Christians to maintain faith? You'll notice that in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5, it, we, we kind of pick up right in the middle of where the writer was encouraging faith. In those first four verses of Hebrews 2, you have an encouragement to them to not neglect this great salvation. Chapter 1 is a, a detailed explanation of the reign and rule of Christ. Uh, multiple quotations from the Old Testament prophets declaring that Jesus is the Son who reigns, He's enthroned, He rules, and He is fulfilling everything that God said. And in describing angels, angels are certainly glorious, and as glorious as they are, they do not hold a candle to the glory of Christ. And now you have this kind of brought together in verse 5 of Hebrews 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. 
interesting beginning and perhaps a little bit confusing. It is not about angels that we're talking about in which the world to come is subjected to. Angels are not ruling over the world to come. And we might read the world to come and get a very, I don't know, unusual idea of what we might be talking about. If you remember in the first verse of of how this sermon, this book began, in talking about in the past how God spoke through the prophets in various ways, but in these last days He's spoken by a Son. And we noted in that, that in the frame of the prophetic mind of the Scriptures, there are simply two ages. You had this first age, if you will, where God is making promises, when there are prophecies about all the things that God is going to do when the Messiah comes, all the promises that are laid out, and one day they're all going to come about. And then you have the last days, or the age to come, which was awaiting all of those promises promises to be fulfilled through Christ. We've talked about many times that sometimes we have a vision of Christ as if he came and though in those three years, every single promise and prophecy that was ever made was all zeroed in and fulfilled right then. It was the beginning of the fulfillment of all things, which is what Acts 3 even describes, that Christ must remain in heaven until the restoration of all things. And we should have that idea here when we read this idea of the world to come is not that we should move on to a third or fourth entity or third world or something like that, but the full full fulfillment, if you will, of all that God had promised and its culmination at the end of the ages when Christ finally returns all that is bound up in that. And so you have this statement of it's not angels that are going to be ruling when all this is said and done. When Christ has put all things under His feet and is ruling over all things and rules over all creation, it's not angels who are in charge of that. Which is an interesting way to say something because doesn't it beg a question? Well, if it's not to angels that the world to come was subjected to which we are speaking, immediately your mind goes, well, then what was the world to come subjected to exactly? Who then is going to rule these things? And you'll notice what he does then is he quotes Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. What I'd like for us to do, and if you're still old school like me, got a ribbon, ribbon mark Hebrews 2 here, and go over to Psalm 8 so that we can see the, the context and the quotation that he's using. Because by seeing what Psalm 8 is about, it will help us understand what the writer of Hebrews is trying to establish about this subjection and this rule to come so that he can make a grand conclusion about what that means for us. Psalm 8, please. Psalm 8. Here the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. 
When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Let's hold there just for a minute and just get the context of what the psalmist is doing. He says, how majestic is your name? When I look at the creation, all that I see is glory and honor and majesty. When I look at the stars, when I look at the heavens and the moon that you have set in place, here is this deep grandeur of God and the vastness of creation. When I see all of that, I consider your majesty and I ask this question. What are humans that you care for us at all? He's just noting our smallness. There are times in life where you get the opportunity to do that. One of those times on our vacations, the Grand Canyon, you definitely feel small. You know, you, you don't go to the Grand Canyon and become overwhelmed with arrogance. Well, look at me. I'm so great up here. I mean, you look at this hole. And you go, look how small I am (laughs) into the vastness of this. We see that with our heavens and space, the vastness of it all. And here we are, this little speck, this little dot. And that's what the psalmist is doing here and saying, when I look at all of this, what are humans that you have any regard for us? We are just this small, finite thing. In all that you have made, in all of your glory, in all of your splendor, in all of your might. And as you read Psalm 8, don't be tripped up there in verse 4. The Son of Man that you care for Him. That is idiomatic in Hebrew to speak of humans and mortals. If you've been in the Ezekiel class, what does God always call Ezekiel? Son of Man. Why is He calling Him that? He's saying, you're a mortal. I'm divine. This is just another way to say humans. Here is the divine God, and here is man, mankind, humanity. What are we that you care for us? And that is what is interesting. Now watch how he continues in verse 5. Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so he makes a declaration. What are we that you are mindful of us? and yet you have crowned them with glory and honor and begins to describe the dominion that humans have, which sounds an awful lot like Genesis 1, 26 through 28. If you remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, you have the Lord saying, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, speaking of humanity, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over the every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. 
them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here is the psalmist basically echoing that message. You have made all of creation. Look how vast and majestic it is. What are we that you consider us? And yet you've given us rule over the earth. That's the sum of Psalm 8. Now come back to Hebrews and watch what the writer of Hebrews does with this. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 6, you'll notice this possesses our quotation that we just looked at. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This is the message of Psalm 8. Notice what the writer of Hebrews now says in the middle of verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him... He left nothing outside of his control. So he says, all things are put under his feet. Humans rule over the earth, have dominion over all things. That's the way God set it up in Genesis 1. The psalmist in Psalm 8 is praising it, and the writer of Hebrews is confirming. That's exactly what God did. Now watch what he says here in the end of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's very helpful because when you're going along and listening to this, you're saying, okay, you're saying that we have dominion and rule over the earth. It sure doesn't look like it. (laughs) Um, Not really seeing it. Seems like that's not the case. And notice the writer of Hebrews validates that. As yet, we don't see that very well, do we? Even though that is the way God established it, even though the psalmist declares it, even though the writer of Hebrews confirms it, he then comes along and says, in putting everything in subjection to them, he hasn't left anything outside of their control, but at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to them. We don't see all that is in store in regards to that. And so you're left with this consideration and you're left with this problem. You're left with this challenge. How can it possibly be that we are the ones who are ruling over the earth? It doesn't appear to be that way. And of course, I think we understand why that's the case. So we go back to Genesis. We understand what happened. The original intent, as God gives it to Adam and Eve, is subdue the earth, rule over it, all the creation that's over it. But that was back in chapter (laughs) 1. When you come to chapter 3, a big problem happened. Sin enters. Human sin enters. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and the curses are laid out and now things are a mess. And it's the mess that we presently see. So now watch what the writer of Hebrews does. At the end of verse 8, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but... We see him for whom for a little while was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Notice he says, now we don't see this rule, but there is something that we do see. We see Jesus. And notice the parallel that's described in this section. We see him 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Notice that parallels Psalm 8, where he was speaking of humans and saying, you made them lower than angels. Why would you do that? Why would you have any regard and care for them? And then he says in verse 9, crowned with glory and honor. Notice that also parallels the quotation in verse 7. Though made lower than angels, you've crowned him with glory and honor and given him this dominion. We don't see the rule that humans have, but we do see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. The argument that the writer of Hebrews is making is that what we do see in Jesus is proof of the rule that is inevitably the rule to come. Notice what he did in verse 5. He said there in verse 5, Now it wasn't to angels that the world to come was subjected. And then what does he do? He quotes Psalm 8. Well, what did Psalm 8 say? Humans are supposed to be the ones who have dominion over the world. And then he stops and says, but we don't see that. (laughs) I look around and go, that doesn't really add up. That doesn't really look right. All right, we don't see that. But what do we see? We see Jesus who fulfills what we were unable to accomplish. The failure of Adam now is set forward as Jesus is the one who fulfills what Adam did not do. We see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He is then crowned with glory and honor. What is amazing of what the writer of Hebrews does is he says Psalm 8 was about humans, but I'd like for you to look at Psalm 8 again and see Jesus in that. That we were the ones who were created for glory and honor and ruling over all things, but instead that was broken. We messed that up. Humans failed. Adam and Eve sinned. So we don't see that. But we do see Jesus and how interesting it is that when you read verses six through eight and now you put it in the lens of Jesus, it fits perfectly again. What is man you mindful of? Son of man you care for? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and putting everything in subjection under his feet. This is the very essence of what Jesus has come to do. He rules over the creation, establishing his rule and will continue to reign until all the enemies are put under his feet. Now, I want you to see why the writer of Hebrews has worked so hard through all that to see what this means for us in regards to who Jesus is. Looking at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Notice that the idea of the writer of Hebrews here, he doesn't just simply say he was crowned with glory and honor because of who he is. That's what he deserves, which I'd be totally on board with that. You could totally say that. Okay, yep, that's who he is. He's God. He deserves all that. Notice the point that he makes because of the suffering of death. He's crowned with glory and honor through the things that he suffers. This is the crowning that would come to him. This is the picture. And the picture that he wants us to recognize is not just simply, well, he was crowned with glory and honor and therefore we're given the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes when we talk about the cross, when we talk about the death of Jesus, 
we have a very narrow focus in terms of, well, all that he did was he came and our sins are forgiven. And that is a huge blessing and is very important. And the New Testament is all about that truth for sure. But that ignores a myriad of other blessings that come from the death of Christ. And one of those things is being laid out here is that we don't see the world to come this idea of subjection. We don't see it. But we do see Jesus who takes the same pathway that we're taking. He's made to be human. And then he suffers death. And because he suffered death, he's crowned with glory and honor given rule and dominion, and now rules over all things. That's the picture that he gives. And that's the hope that's being given here is that you see Jesus and what he did is going to be the path for us as well. He is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. This is the essence. Notice it's called in verse verse 9, the grace of God. This is a display of the grace of God. What Christ goes through. Becoming human, suffering death, and then being crowned with glory and honor is a depiction of the grace of God that's given to us. You know, sometimes when we when we look at these things, you might think of a passage where I think every time we ever read this passage, it is always a head scratcher. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you have the Apostle Paul in the midst of talking to these Christians about why can't you solve your own disputes? And he's arguing with them about why are you taking each other to court? And he has this statement that all of us go, what? Where he says, don't you know that we're supposed to be judging angels? And we all go, "Uh, really? (laughs) Where did that come from? I have no idea. Well, it parallels what the writer of Hebrews is doing right here. You don't see the rule and the dominion now. But that is the destiny of what humans are to be. This is the idea of the scriptures of these pictures of reigning with Christ and being with him in that capacity. What it means to be sons and daughters or heirs of the kingdom is this idea of rule that was to be given. Now, we've messed that up. Christ comes and solves that problem. And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants to show. He is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death that we might, take, might by the grace of God, taste death for everyone. I would imagine these Christians at this point are saying, this is all very fascinating, but what is, how is this supposed to help me? What is the big deal with this? Glad you asked. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Two big ideas in that sentence. Number one, humans are destined for glory and honor. You see it there in that statement? It was fitting for whom and by whom all things exist, what's supposed to happen? Bring many sons to glory. This is the whole idea of what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. Think about what the writer of Hebrews did. 
He does not come along and quote Psalm 8 and say, boy, isn't it terrible that we had everything before us and we ruined it? That there in Genesis 1, God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it, rule over it, and, and over every, everything in creation, rule over it. And then Psalm 8, what is humanity? What is man that you are mindful of us and all of the vastness of creation that you would give us glory and honor and crown us in that way so that we rule over all things. And the writer of Hebrews point is not, boy, it's a shame what we could have had. No, his point is that's yet ahead in bringing many sons to glory. And that's his whole point. We don't see the glory that is to come, but we do see Jesus. The biggest hope of encouragement that we have is that so often what we do is we look at this life. We stay in the here and now. We look at the physical and we say, this is a mess. Where's God? This is a disaster. Look at all the wreckage. This is terrible. Lives wrecked, mess, awful. And here he's going, you don't see yet all that lies ahead. You have no picture of this world to come rule idea that Christ presently has in putting all things under his feet. You don't see the outcome of that yet. You don't see the glory that lies ahead. Well, what am I supposed to do in the meantime while I wait for that glory to come? See Jesus. See his trajectory. See what he did. See that through him, he is brought into glory. He is crowned with honor. He is crowned with majesty. This is the picture that is being given to us. God is bringing his children to glory, which, by the way, let me just this is kind of the world we live in. So we have to make these explanations from time to time. Do not be thrown by the word sons. (laughs) When sons were heirs to the throne in ancient times. So this is not gender specific. He's saying we're all heirs to the throne. He's bringing us to glory, bringing us to that reign, bringing us to that point. And we don't see that trajectory yet. We don't see how that's going to happen. We don't understand anything about what that rule looks like. 1 Corinthians 6, judging angels, don't understand a bit about that. But I see Jesus. I see him becoming for a little while lower than the angels, human, and being exalted to the point that he rules over all creation. And because I see that, I know that's our trajectory Also, that's the point he's first making. Don't give up. Don't let the weight of this world destroy you. Don't let the suffering and the pain and the anguish and the trials and the pressures and the temptations and how Satan is coming after you. Do not let that destroy the glory that lies ahead because you do not see it. 
You do not see what God has in store. You do not see everything that lies ahead. You do not see the exaltation that is going to come. Think about how many times God talks about those who humble themselves are going to be exalted. That's not an idea of, well, okay, if you humble yourself at work, you're going to get a promotion tomorrow. (laughs) We're talking about humility in this life, lowness in this life, exaltation in the world to come. Exaltation when all things are brought to right. When Christ puts all things under his feet and brings everything under subjection. That's when we'll see it. That's when exaltation happens. Exaltation's not about now. We don't see exaltation. This is why Paul would say in Romans, we, we consider this present suffering. We can begin to compare this present suffering to the amazing glories to be revealed. We haven't seen it yet. Hasn't been revealed yet. We don't see it. This is the idea of faith. But we do see Jesus. And by seeing Him and His progression of human to exaltation, we will follow that trajectory. That is His hope number one. Hope number two in verse 10. For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. That's point one. Point two should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, I like the first point, and I don't like the second point. The first point is, God is going to bring us to glory. The second point is, how does that glory come? It's through suffering. The encouragement he's giving these Christians is that glory is not going to come through good times. It's not going to come through a lack of trials or come through a lack of pain. And this again is what we see in Jesus. Jesus does not come, have palm fronds over him every moment, eating wonderful delicacies everywhere he goes, lying on a bed and throned everywhere he goes about. You know, never having to walk, everybody carrying him on his shoulders, living in a palace, showing what a great life it is to be a follower of God. All you have to do is love God and look at all the riches you'll have as he swam in, you know, denarii. It's not what you ever see. In seeing Jesus, what you see is sacrifice and suffering. This has been the message of the gospel of Mark. You want to follow me? then you're going to have to suffer for me. And Jesus is showing if you want glory, this great glory that God is bringing us to, this enjoyment of rule and reign with God for all eternity, then the path to that is not a path of comfort and ease, but of sacrifice and suffering. This is the idea of verse 10 when he says, that should make the founder of their salvation, that's talking about Jesus, Make him perfect. Now, a lot of people really have a hard time with that. 
How do you make Jesus perfect? He's already perfect. All right. And we're not talking about his nature. There's nothing flawed in Jesus that it goes, okay, well, he was 99.9% perfect. And we just needed to, you know, fine tune that final tenth of a percent. That's not the idea. No, the idea is that what you have is that Jesus is showing that the only way to enjoy the glory to come is to go through suffering. This is the completing effect. That what Jesus does is he takes on the form of a human. And it's not just simply so he can die, but so that you can see the path of suffering. He takes on what we will go through. This is why we're not far in Hebrews from when he's going to say he was tempted and tested just like you. He's trying to see that there's a connection. It's not just simply Jesus came, became a human, died the next day and went back to heaven and see, look, he became human and died for us. There is a life that has lived in humanity. And the picture for us is that he comes to glory through suffering. And what you see, the word, the ESV uses the word that he would be the founder of our salvation. Some translations read the pioneer of their salvation. That that Greek word, hard to get a good word on it. Some say leader. So I've thrown a bunch of them up there. Another word is trailblazer. The idea behind this of being author or pioneer or founder or leader or trailblazer is that he led the way that we are going to follow. That's why the writer of Psalm 8 uses, or the Hebrew writer uses Psalm 8 that way. Jesus, human, suffering, obedient to death, even death on the cross, crowned with glory and honor. This is the path. He is the founder of our salvation, the trailblazer, the leader, the pioneer. Because that's the expectation, is if we are going to be brought to glory, then the path is through suffering. The encouragement is not to be surprised by suffering. Peter would write that. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that you're going through. Jesus himself, as he goes about the earth, how many times does Jesus have to say, if you want to be my disciple, what do you need to pick up? Please pick up your pillow and follow me. We're all about that. I'm in. Pick up a pillow. Good. Let's go. Pillow and blanket. I will follow. What are you supposed to pick up? The cross. Glory and being made children of God and enjoying all that there is. The path is the path of suffering. Friends, do not give up your faith. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of evil, in the midst of trials, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of loss, in the midst of injustice, in the midst of being ridiculed, in the midst of being abused, in the midst of being scorned and maligned, disregarded, do not give up your faith because we each understand that that is the path to glory. That is the road we walk. That is the way we must go. 
Our path is the same path as Jesus. And friends, that's why we have to be kept near the cross. Because I want to be kept near the pillow. And Jesus says, no, you've got to remember what this is all about. This is about the path of suffering. This is about carrying a cross. This is about recognizing that glory is not here. Comfort is not here. But glory is in the world to come. Glory is in what lies ahead. What are humans? That the Lord remembers us. And the answer that God gives is staggering. You think about the answer. It is is just mind-blowing. The answer that would seem logical to me is that God would say, okay, what are humans that you are mindful of them? You are absolutely nothing. And aren't you glad that God cares anyway? (laughs) I, I could understand that. That makes sense. And that's not his point. What are humans that you would be mindful of them? He says, because you've crowned them with glory and honor to come. And as yet, we don't see that glory and that honor. But just as surely as Jesus rose from the dead and was crowned with glory and honor, so we too will do the exact same thing. That's what he wants these Christians to have as hope. This is why Jesus came, to bring many to glory. To be able to enjoy all that there is of becoming a child of God. We are the ones who become exalted by the grace of God because Jesus tasted death for everyone. The death of Jesus is the reason we can glory. And it's the reason why we will have glory. I believe that might be why the Apostle Paul would say, if I'm going to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in the cross of Jesus. Because it's everything. I encourage you this morning to be faithful in hard times. And that you would be faithful in hard times because you see Jesus. And you see His suffering. And you see His sacrifice. And you see all He endured. And you see the glory that was bestowed upon Him. A name that is above every name. Crowned with glory and honor. And all things put under His feet. Wish we could do Revelation. You want to get 30 minutes for Revelation? Put your brother in there. How are the people of God described when you see them after they've been killed for the cause of Christ? But standing around the throne of God, praising and glorying and honoring God. Revelation 14. Beautiful picture. These are the ones who refused to to become defiled by the things of this earth. But we're faithful to God. And their robes were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Picture of great glory. 
But it's why Jesus walked around saying you have to count the cost. Because it's not going to be easy here. The challenges are great. But they are not worth comparing to the glory that none of us can see. How is your faith and where do you stand with God today? I consider that you would turn away from any sins that you have in your life. Anything that you are unwilling to sacrifice. Anything you're unwilling to give up. Because you see that not only did Jesus die for you, He died for you that so, you could be, so that you could be with Him. That He's bringing you to glory. And that the things that you have to give up in this life and the hardships that we deal with, consequences that we face, trials that we endure, we readily walk to. Or as James would say, count all joy. Because we know it's producing within us a greater way to glory. Can we help you in any way? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?